Okay, so we're going to be looking at what are known as the seven deadly sins. I'm not going to give you a pop quiz uh, to try to name all seven of those. Here they are uh, for you. There is vainglory, uh, envy, uh, wrath, sloth, gluttony, uh, greed, and lust. And the seven deadly sins and You know, initially when I thought we would do this series through the season of Lent, I thought we would just dive right in and look at uh, one of these sins each uh, Sunday. But a few months ago, I mentioned to one of the leaders in our church that we were going to be doing this uh, series, and he had a bit of an interesting reaction. He wasn't exactly uh, enthusiastic uh, that we were going to do a series on the seven deadly sin, not just because he didn't want to uh, have to deal with those different places in his life, but he asked me a very legitimate question. He said, the seven deadly sins, is that, is that even in the Bible? Is that like a legitimate category? He said, I thought that was like some old medieval um, church way of, of thinking about sin. Does that even show up in the Bible? Why do a series on the seven deadly sins? And, um, you know, I think that's a pretty legitimate question. Uh, There is actually nowhere uh, in the Bible where you see all of these seven sins named. There's nowhere where it says, here are the seven deadly sins and uh, lists them out. Um, And yet, uh, what you will find if you read through the scriptures, you'll see that each of these uh, seven sins certainly is is talked about. There are stories that that illustrate their destructive power in our lives. We're going to look at those over the next uh, several weeks together. And more than that, you often have... Um, these lists of, of vices, uh, like in the passage that Glenda read for us this morning in Colossians 3, where we'll see these, these lists of vices uh, that are contrasted um, with the virtues of life in Jesus. And in this particular passage, you might have noticed Paul names four of the seven deadly sins, rage and uh, lust and um, pride and um, greed, he names those, and the other uh, lists would, would name the others as well. So I do think um, that this list, which was formulated about 500 years after Jesus' resurrection, I do think this list of the seven deadly sins uh, is biblical. Uh, but um, the more that I started thinking about it, I thought, you know, I think before just jumping into these sins, we really needed a week um, to kind of introduce this series and to really ask the question of why study the seven deadly sins. Um, why do a, a, a series on this? Because, you know, frankly, for some of you, maybe for those of you um, who are not yet um, followers of Jesus, maybe you're not yet convinced. And by the way, we long uh, to be a church, both for the convinced and the unconvinced. Um, or for those of you who are new uh, to following Jesus, maybe you would look at these seven and you would think to yourself, I mean, are they really that deadly? Are these really that bad? I mean, sloth, just watching an extra episode of your show that you're binging on Netflix or, you know, gluttony, you know, that extra uh, dessert that you shouldn't have. I mean, is, is it really that big of a deal? Maybe these are not deadly. Maybe they're just kind of common human foibles. Uh, there's a woman named Rebecca DeYoung. She wrote a great book called Glittering Vices that was really helpful to me in preparing for this series. And she kind of traces how um, our culture and our world looks at these seven deadly sins. And she she quotes from a professor um, who taught philosophy for 30 years at the University of Texas, my wife's school, Hook'em Horns, um, Robert Solomon. And, And here's what he says. He says, why would God bother to raise a celestial eyebrow given that the deadly sins barely jiggle the scales of justice? 
war in Ukraine, violence, human trafficking. I mean, aren't these more sort of serious issues of justice? Does God really care about the bloke who can't get out of bed, sloth, uh, the boy who takes one too many peeks at his playboy, lust, and the man scarfing down three extra jelly donuts, gluttony? Does God really care about this? Are these not just sort of common human foibles? Some people take that perspective. Other people actually have gone a step further and have said, you know what, maybe there's actually some virtue in these different vices. Um, so, you know, business school professors uh, might say that, that envy can actually be a, a helpful motivator, a helpful driver if you want to succeed in your business. Maybe envy is something uh, to be harnessed. Um, certainly, there are, are those who would suggest that um, we need to have a little bit more sloth in our life. Wendy Wasserstein, the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, she actually wrote a whole self-help book about how to become more slothful, how to bring down your blood pressure as you um, take a more lazy approach to life. Uh, I've heard, um, according to Martin Marty, who's at the University of Chicago, he said that, that the French actually once sent a delegation to the Vatican trying to get gluttony off of the list because they love their French cuisine. Um, and there's a, there's a professor at Cambridge named Simon Blackburn. He says um, that really the, the thing about lust is just we need to get rid of sort of all of our notion of guilt and shame around it. He says lust flourishes uh, when we remove sort of all of the uh, controls and restrictions around it. So some people have said, actually, these, these vices really are, 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 are virtues and should be seen in that way. Other people um, have kind of psychologized uh, this list of human inclinations. So we're not trying to uproot our anger and wrath. What do we do? We go to anger management. We're just trying to, to manage that anger. Um, or we look at sloth just in terms of procrastination and how to have sort of better um, disciplined habits. Or um, maybe we think that, um, you know, the, the sins like, like um, pride shouldn't be so much seen as a, as a sin, but we should promote, you know, positive uh, self-esteem and self-empowerment. Um, so whether we, we, we see them as just kind of common human foibles, we turn them into virtues, or we psychologize them, I think it's fair to say that our world as a whole has kind of left the seven deadly sins behind. We're not that concerned about them. They're not that uh, deadly. Um, after all, what could be so bad for you that feels good? You know, and if it feels good, then why not just do it? That's a lot of the logic in our culture today, and I think it's a really helpful insight for us to recognize that each of these seven deadly sins, they, they do feel good. Um, at least initially, at least to some degree, there is some pleasure, there's some good thing that maybe we are seeking through them. And that's a really important insight to bear in mind all throughout this series. You might have noticed uh, right in the middle of the passage that Glenda read for us in Colossians chapter 3, Paul uses a word, a Greek word that he uses all throughout the New Testament. It's a really key word um, to New Testament theology. Um, and it's translated in verse 5 as evil desires. Do you notice that? Evil desires. And when you hear that, evil desires, what do you think of? Maybe, maybe you think of people doing evil things, right? Lying and cheating and, and, and stealing. And maybe you think evil desires must be the desire to do something evil, 
right? That's where we naturally go because of that translation. But the word that Paul uses here, it's, it's a Greek word. It's the Greek word epithumia. It, it means literally an epidesire, an over-desire, meaning an excessive, inordinate desire, not for something bad, but for something good. Meaning you long for, you want, you are so set on getting this good thing that you're willing to pursue it um, in a way that might be outside of God's good design and intention for your life. So think about the seven deadly sins through that lens. You know, so, so lust, lust promises what? Pleasure, maybe intimacy. But sloth beckons us with comfort. Envy and vainglory, they promise us, they hold out to us the idea of real significance and status and self-worth. Greed promises self-sufficiency, security. You, you, you look at wrath even. What does wrath promise? It promises a sense of control, maybe even a sense of justice. Now, are these bad things? By no means, no. Comfort, self-sufficiency. A sense of self-worth, justice, all of these are, are very good things. And the problem, Paul says, when they become evil is when we're so set on getting these things or having or holding these things that we're willing to pursue them in a way that's outside of God's good design and intention for us. And that's why you can see why the seven deadly sins are so alluring. 1,500 years after this list was created, they're still just as seductive because they promise us happiness. But you see, the problem, the problem with these seven deadly sins is they can't provide what they promise. They don't really follow through on what we are seeking from them, do they? And eventually what happens is the more that you seek your happiness through these seven different means, you begin to find that they start to hollow you out. You find yourself emptied. You find yourself broken in your relationships with other people, certainly in your relationship with God. And that's the sense in which these are deadly sins. Any country music fans, any fans of Alan Jackson you remember that song he sang, he had the lyric, everything I love is killing me? I think that could be sung about the seven deadly sins, right? Just, just think through them. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that will um, really um, just destroy your soul, like harboring anger and resentment, even if it feels good initially. There's nothing that will steal your joy more than the constant comparison of envy. There's nothing that will rob your life of a sense of real meaning and purpose like sloth. There's nothing that actually keeps you from having real intimacy in your relationship, sexually and non-sexually, like lust. There's nothing that will give you just a sense of, of constant insecurity, like vain glory. Nothing that will actually take away your enjoyment of, of good things, including food, like gluttony. You, you can see the way in which these, these deadly sins, they, they actually don't provide the, the happiness that they promise. They, they kill, they destroy ourselves and our relationships with God and other people. 
And so they really are deadly. And, and I think maybe it's a helpful clarifier to say that, that when we say that these are the seven deadly sins, here's what we don't mean. Um, we do not mean that they're like the worst of all possible sins. I think some people um, get that idea. But let me ask you, aren't murder and cruelty worse than just anger? I mean, isn't it true that rape and adultery are worse than just lust? Absolutely, without a doubt. They're not like the worst possible sins, nor are they the most common sins. If that were the case, you know, lying, um, you know, maybe, maybe cheating, stealing, drunkenness, those might be added to the list. No, when, when these seven were put together, the reason they were identified is because they were considered to be what you might call source vices, do you know what that means? Um, Jeffrey Chaucer, the English poet, put it this way. He said, uh, these seven deadly sins, they're like trunks of trees from which all these other branches, all these other sins grow out. You know, so the, the, the source vice might be greed. And, and from that greed might come deceit or exploitation or violence. I mean, you think about the guy who, who kills his wife for the insurance policy money. Why does he do so? Ultimately, the source vice for that violent action is greed. And, and so we see the seven deadly sins, they're, they're deadly in the offspring, in the children, the other sins that they, they produce and that they sire. Um, but most of all, because of the way they affect our relationship with God. And some of you, maybe you hear this and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm already sold. I've, I've lived enough years to, to see um, the deadly effects of, of greed or envy or lust in my own heart. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced, yes, they're deadly. But why do we need to do a whole series on these seven deadly sins? I mean, eight weeks, that's a lot of my life uh, to give to this. And some of you know a big reason why we started this church is because we want to help our neighbors and friends who don't yet know Jesus come to know Jesus and have um, the ability to follow him within a, a church family. And isn't it true that a lot of non-Christians, like their biggest issue with the church is what? Those Christians are so judgmental. Right? They're always looking for what's wrong with everybody else. And, 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 and maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, this just confirms what I was thinking. They're doing a whole series on sin. And, and so maybe some of you, you think, yeah, why well, do a series in light of that? Others of you, maybe you're the kind of person who tends to beat yourself up. And you think, great, now I'm going to have to talk about this in my community group uh, every week, and, and I'm going to be filled with just this, this guilt and, and, and shame, and I'm going to feel badly about myself for the next eight weeks. Why do I want to do that? Others of you maybe would say, I mean, isn't there a slight danger if we spend all this time looking at these sins that we're just going to be more kind of enamored by them? You remember that movie Seven? I, I'm, not, I'm not recommending that movie, by the way, um, with Brad Pitt. Um, don't go and, and, and see that. Um, uh, but there, there is a danger. We could just sort of become more fascinated or enamored with them. And so I, I recognize those concerns. Here's why, though. Um, I think this is a series that, that we need to press into um, together. You could say, why, why study sin? Why do a series on sin? Two reasons. Um, one, it, it really, I think, helps us understand our culture. Helps us understand our world. The things that move us and drive us um, to study these seven deadly sins. You know, like, why do we love a good story about a celebrity who has a scandal? It's somebody who is really elevated, who has their fall from grace. I think envy goes a long way to being able to explain that. 
Um, Or why is it that we'll spend so much money on cosmetic surgeries? Or that Instagram influencers is even a thing? Or why is it that teenagers are so, you know, concerned with how they're being viewed on social media? I mean, look no further than vain glory. You know, the movies that um, gross the most at the box office are ones with, with revenge plots, or why is it that, you know, both CNN and Fox News, they know if they can, you know, pump out a lot of content that riles you up, that gets you angry, they're going to get the most viewers. Why? Because there's something seductive about wrath and anger. Why do we see such a workaholic culture, if not because of greed or a secularized notion of sloth? Why is there so much consumption of late-night internet pornography and that continues to depict sex in more and more violent ways, if not because of the power of lust? The seven deadly sins, they help us um, to understand our culture, but more importantly, they help us understand ourselves. The goal of this series is not that you can walk away and better identify what's wrong with the world and stand in judgment over other people. The purpose is to be able to examine ourselves. And throughout Christian history, the season of Lent has often been that that time for that deeper self-examination. And that willingness to, to look within and to see our sin and to recognize more of our need for a Savior. Um, so that we can appreciate more of what Jesus came to do in his death and resurrection for us. You know, why is it that coaches, they study the opposing team? Doctors study cancer. Great generals study the opposing army. Why? They want to understand how they operate so that they they can experience victory over it. And that's true for us. That's the process of sanctification in the Christian life. Uh, Much of what we're going to do throughout this series is we're going to say, okay, what is the sin? And then what are the symptoms? How how do I recognize when when, when this this deadly sin is working and and is gaining a hold over my heart? And why is it so deadly? How can we kind of unmask some of the allure of it? And then how do we uproot that sin and turn in God's grace back to the life that's found in Jesus? And that's the process the Bible calls sanctification. That's really what uh, Colossians 3 is um, all about. And I want to come back to Colossians 3 to to conclude um, this morning. And as you look at Colossians 3, um, one of the things I want you to notice is the kind of language that Paul uses. I want you to notice this is not the language of moderation. I've talked to a lot of people about the seven deadly sins, and their initial instinct is to say, really, it's all about moderation, right? Right? You know, how, how do you know when you're crossing the line, going from a nice vacation you know, into sloth, or you're going from healthy competition into envy, or you're, you're, you're going from you know, wanting to have like a really nice meal into gluttony? How do I know where the line is so that I can just moderate and stay on the other side of the line? Um, that is not the solution to being able to uproot these sins within our hearts. Look at the language Paul uses. It's way more radical than that. Verse three, he says, in Christ, you died to your old self and your new life is hidden with Christ and God. Verse five, he says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Verses nine and 10, he talks about take off the old self, put on the new self. Do you see that? Far more radical language of death and life when it comes to to dealing with these sins in our hearts. The answer, the solution is not just moderation. So what is the solution? 
I think this is going to help us as we deal with each of these sins throughout this series. And I want us to see this in Colossians 3. If you really want to be able to uproot these sins in your life, there are really two questions uh, that you need to learn to ask. And these are deeper heart-level questions. Here they are. First, what is my motivation? And then secondly, where am I finding my identity? What is my motivation? Look again at verse 5. Paul uses some of these words, evil desires, lust, greed, idolatry. Those aren't behaviors. They're heart-level attitudes. They're heart-level motivations. He's inviting us to consider what's, what's motivating me in the things that I am doing. And, and this is important because um, sometimes um, your, your motivations... Um, you could be doing, I'm not just talking about sort of bad behaviors here, right? You could, you could be doing good behaviors, the same good behavior, but from completely different motivations, right? That's why Jesus is often critiquing the Pharisees. Remember, he says, look, you're praying. That's a good thing, right? But why are you doing it? Vainglory. You want to be seen in doing so. He says, yeah, you're not, you're not cheating on your spouse. You're not committing adultery, but there's lust in your heart. He says, you're tithing, but your heart is full of greed. And ultimately, whatever that motivation is, that's going to form you. That's going to shape your character, you know, regardless of the external behavior. I could preach this sermon out of vainglory, right? wanting you to affirm me, to praise and say, hey, what a really good sermon. Or I can preach the sermon to glorify God and want to help people. You can be an honest person in your business, I read an article in Forbes magazine recently where they said, look, if you want to succeed in business, be honest. Let people know that you can be true to your word. You can be honest for your own self-interest, or you can be honest because you say, I want to respect other people, and I want to reflect the truth-telling God. You can run a race. Anybody remember that movie, Chariots of Fire? And here's Harold Abrahams, right? What's his motivation? Envy right? The, the thought of, of anybody being better than him. He cannot stand that thought. He runs out of envy. Then there's Eric Liddell. He runs and he says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. It's a way for him to, to use his gifts to glorify God. The very same behavior can be driven by totally different motivations. And what the seven deadly sins do is they invite us to start to examine our hearts and to ask, what's motivating me in what I am doing? learning to recognize that and to see that. And then the second question is, where am I finding my identity? What, what gives me worth and value as a human being? Look at the identity language that Paul uses at the beginning of chapter three. He says, you have died and been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. You have a new self, which is being renewed in the image of God. He says, this is who you are, so live like it. You know, willpower is not enough to overcome the seven deadly sins. Some of us know that. You could be really good at recognizing these sins, identifying those motivations, and saying, I don't want to be controlled by lust or greed or envy. But willpower alone is not enough to be able to uproot these sins. They're too powerful for that. It has to do with where are you finding your identity? There was, there was a Scottish uh, pastor named Thomas Chalmers, a Presbyterian pastor. He said, the heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered. Praise God, there's hope, 
right? But then he says, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Did you hear that? The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one, meaning your heart needs to see something that's more attractive, that's more beautiful, that's better. Right? And that's why Paul says what he says in this passage. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your heart on the fact that your life, your identity is now hidden with God in Christ, that you have died and have been raised with him. What does that mean, friends? Let let me just uh, unpack that briefly as we conclude here. What does it mean that you've died with Christ? When you trust in Jesus, that your life is now so inextricably bound up with him, it's as though you died on the cross with Jesus. It's as though you died for all of the wrong, all of the sin that you've ever committed. So now when God looks at you, he sees you as if you never did anything wrong. There's no condemnation. And then what it means that you've been raised to new life with Christ, that you're seated with him at the right hand of God, is, is you know, the right hand of God, that's the place of highest honor. There is no greater status that someone could have in all the universe than to be seated at the right hand of God. Why does Jesus get to sit there? Because there's nobody who's ever lived a better life than Jesus. No one who lived a life that was more noble and sacrificial and courageous, and he did that for us in our place. But when you trust in Jesus, do you know that now you are seated at the right hand of God? That God looks at you as if you lived that noble, courageous, sacrificial life that he delights in you? the way that he delights in his son? Paul says that's your identity. Set your heart on that. Set your mind on that. In a way where you begin to be satisfied and delighted in that so that these seven deadly sins do not have the power over you that they had before, so that you're able to look at, 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 at say, envy or vainglory And say, you can't give me the status that I have in Jesus. You're able to look at sloth and you're able to say, you can't give me the comfort that I have in Jesus. You can look at greed and say, you can't give me the sense of security that I have in Jesus. You can look at lust and gluttony and say, you can't give me the pleasure, both now and in eternity future, when I'm going to share in all the glories of Jesus. You can't give me the glory and the pleasure that I have in Jesus. Do you see how that works? It's as we set our hearts, we set our minds on our identity in Jesus. That's where we find the power to begin to uproot these sins in our lives. And so I hope that you will join us on this journey over the next 40 days. And as what we're going to do is we're going we're to take time to learn, um, to examine our hearts, to recognize uh, when these deadly sins are operating within our hearts. Um, We're going to learn to to recognize them. We're going to learn how we can um, uproot them. But most of all, we're going to learn to to turn our eyes towards Jesus and who we are in him and to find our life in him. Um, For he is far, far better. And we're going to sing in just a moment this song um, with a lyric that says, my soul is satisfied in him alone. And, And friends, I pray that that would be increasingly Um, true for us as we make our way 
through this series together. Uh, Let me pray as we come to the Lord's table.